Imagine being able to attack a company's servers without leaving a trace, a kind of digital smash and grab of sensitive information, such as encryption keys created to protect sensitive transactions on a site like Amazon or your bank, with no way to trace any of it back to you. This isn't a typical person in the middle attack that would leave too many fingerprints. No, this would be almost the perfect crime and one done with a very simple yet subtle zero day. Such a scenario isn't fantasy. Something like this actually existed between 2012 and 2014. I'm talking about Heartbleed or CVE 2014-0160. It's a vulnerability and protocols that are designed to protect data in transit. Except during the two-year window, there was a serious vulnerability in OpenSSL that no one knew about. What I want to know is how that vulnerability was able to persist for so long. I mean, it was open source, right? And how many other serious vulnerabilities like Heartbleed are lurking unknown in the applications that we use every day, in the websites that we depend on, and in the devices that we carry? To answer these questions, I'll talk with an expert on developing security testing tools, someone who was, coincidentally, there the moment Heartbleed was discovered. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about one of the most perfect examples we have of a dangerous zero day, Heartbleed, and how fuzz testing was used to discover this new class of vulnerability, and what the security industry can do in terms of developing new tools in the future to help stop the next Heartbleed, such as using more automation or perhaps even machine learning or AI. So what is Heartbleed? We hear the name, but do we really understand the vulnerability? Secure Socket Layer, or SSL, and its successor, Transport Layer Security, or TLS, are complex protocols that operate behind the little paddle lock you see in the address bar of your preferred web browser. There's actually a lot of things going on there, but suffice it to say, SSL establishes an encrypted channel between your browser and the site you are trying to access. Once it's set up, it needs to stay set up until you leave that site, so it needs to know whether the two parties are still there. So there's this constant communication going on in the background, something called heartbeat function of SSL. When the heartbeat function is operating by design, it sends a message, I'm here, and the website responds, I am too. The reality is more nuanced. There's an initial hello followed by a secret message and then the length of the secret message. So, hello, bird, four characters. And the server would send back, hello, bird, four characters. And this happens over and over until you leave the website and break the encrypted channel and establish a new one on another website. That's how it's supposed to work. Fact is, not everyone rolls their own SSL TLS, nor should they. History is filled with failed examples of homegrown encryption, some with disastrous consequences. 
as I said, it's pretty complicated to implement if you don't already know something about encryption. So a lot of sites use something pre-made, such as OpenSSL. No shame in doing that. Sites included Google, Dropbox, Netflix, and even Facebook. And this is open source software, meaning that there's some developers or project behind it that has already built out the basics of what you need to put into your code and start using it immediately. So on December 31st, 2011, at almost midnight, Happy New Year! a developer with direct access to OpenSSL, Robin Siegelman, committed the changes that changed the heartbeat function in OpenSSL. We know the name and we know the time because it's recorded in the logs. He later told the Sydney Morning Herald, in one of the new features, unfortunately, I missed validating a variable containing a length. Length. What is he talking about? In OpenSSL 1.0.1, the heartbeat function didn't bother to limit the length of the characters used. So remember our example with the word bird. So, if a site were using OpenSSL 1.0.1 and a criminal hacker knew this, they could create a malformed heartbeat such that it would say something like, hello, bird, 500 characters. And the server, dutifully, would have to respond with, hello, bird, and then 496 other characters. And that's the problem. Those 496 characters were probably just sitting somewhere in memory. And those 496 characters probably included recently used encryption keys, passwords, social security numbers, and other PII. It would be a massive data breach. And it wouldn't just be that one time. The criminal hacker could make this request over and over. Remember, it's a heartbeat. I said this would be the perfect crime. If you have the encryption keys, you have access to the live session and no way for anyone to know that you had that access. And if you could initiate a heartbeat before authentication was complete on the site, you could smash and grab the encrypted information before anyone even knew who you were. You could use a Starbucks free Wi-Fi and virtually leave no trace behind. So this is a zero day in that the operators of OpenSSL didn't know about it, and it persisted for two years. You may have heard of Linus's law. It states that given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. Except that in this case, all those eyeballs were looking at the code, and it just wasn't enough to discover the heartbleed vulnerability. It was hiding in a blind spot. And traditional application security tools at the time, such as static analysis, they couldn't find it either. It took something different to discover Heartbleed, and that's what makes it kind of special. Fuzz testing. What is fuzz testing? It's certainly not a new solution, but it still isn't used nearly enough, in my opinion. Fuzzing involves sending invalid input to stress test software. Either the program can handle the invalid input, or it can't. In discovering Heartbleed, what the researchers got back wasn't a crash, it wasn't a fault. It was anomalous behavior, consistently anomalous behavior. So if the fuzz tester inputted 70 characters, it got back 70 characters. If it inputted 400 characters, it got 400 characters back. Funny thing is, the protocol spec said it should be limited. So at least in the case of OpenSSL 1.0.1, there was no upper limit and returning more data than it should have. This was obvious. 
In March of 2014, researchers from Google and a Finnish startup named Konamicon both turned their attention to OpenSSL. Coincidence, right? Actually, it happens a lot, where two independent researchers will look into the same problem at the same time. There are a lot of dupes reported, say, with bug bounties, for example. The thing is, the criminal hackers also know how to fuzz, and they might have found Heartbeat first, but we have no way of knowing. Personally, I don't think anyone successfully exploited Heartbleed, but the thing to know is that criminal hackers do use open source fuzzing tools all the time. And some of these free fuzzing tools take a lot of time to run, and they require some expertise to separate the signal from the noise. But we also know that some criminal hackers have plenty of time, and at least some software experience. Determining whether someone had read the memory from your server is something that is really hard, so we really have no way of knowing whether criminal hackers even knew about Heartbleed before its public announcement, or if anyone was in fact able to steal from the 600,000 vulnerable web servers at that time. Here's the thing. OpenSSL is one of the most common protocols. Therefore, the amount of traffic that is generated is just enormous. So sneaking in a malformed request among the millions that come in every single day, say if you're a big bank or a well-known organization, exploiting, even finding that needle in the haystack, even if you knew what you were looking for, is going to be hard. Here's why. Heartbleed was something different. As I said, it wasn't a crash, it wasn't a fault, it was an anomaly. And so I think it's highly unlikely that a criminal hacker would have noticed that. Other good news? Commercial fuzzers today have gotten much better. They're much more automated. And so it's not just Google and Microsoft and Apple who are able to fuzz test their software. More and more mid-sized companies are now fuzz testing their software during development. So that's a win-win for everyone. So can we detect the next heartbleed? called up someone I used to work with, someone who was there at the moment Heartbleed was discovered, someone who is now at a university in Finland and spending his days thinking about these security tool questions. I'll let him introduce himself. Raule Kaksonen, Senior Security Specialist in the University of Oulu. Raleigh and I started by discussing the big picture, the beginning of the software development life cycle, when code is first developed, but then there's also that other side, after the code is released and a vulnerability is found. Companies need to think of tools that can help them test the whole life cycle and not just the part about getting your app to market first. Actually, I have been uh, looking at the phase of security tools that they are obviously are proactive tools to look for vulnerabilities, whether they are in the, already in the R&D phase, that kind of for applications and and systems before they are production. Then there are the security scanning of a live systems. And then we move to the side that something bad has already happened and we need to respond. So incident response, how do, what will we do? Do we detect the, the problems that has happened? And then after the incident, there's also a need to do some forensic analysis, see that what did happen? Can we learn about it? And well, in legal context, we want to find out who did it also to go to court if possible. Uh, so it's the whole spectrum from the development phase that we start looking at what are the things to be fixed at this early stage into very late in the cycle that uh, something bad happened. Who can we blame? Who can we ask for compensation perhaps? 
So what makes a good security tool to be open source or commercial? Well, I guess um, it doesn't really matter that much if it's an open source tool or commercial tool or freeware tool. I think it essentially it have to solve a problem for the user, for the user to use it. And, and that's the key. And then obviously there are things like usability. So um, usually open source tools are used maybe more like, an, if you talk about security, more like a specialists. So they appreciate command line, APIs and so on. But obviously ease of use in that context is very important. Quality, the tool must not crash, so it must be reliable and effective. So uh, you, especially in a security context, you, you have trust for the results so that you have the findings are real. Or if you didn't find anything, it's also because there was nothing to be found. And support, this is a, uh, difficult for open source. So obviously you, uh, your users typically are not paying you. So how, why would you support them? Uh, and that's where you need usually a community of people that can support each other. And well, if your tool comes very popular, then perhaps there's um, some a company which starts to provide commercial support. And then the tool must be maintained so that there are fixes and upgrades uh, as needed. So um, I guess the bottom line is that it doesn't matter what kind of tool it is, it's still the underlying uh, questions are same. Uh, what makes good tools? Buzz testing tools came out of academic research. The most famous story is from the late 1980s of Professor Barton Miller at the University of Wisconsin, who, one summer's night, in the middle of a thunderstorm, noticed that his remote session in the university was influenced by electronic discharges in the air. Gibberish was being inputted, and the program sometimes did and did not behave as expected. This is often cited as where the idea of putting invalid input to test software comes from, but I recently heard of another. This dates back to the 1970s. It's the idea of taking punch cards out of the trash and running these random program cards against your program to see if it was resilient enough. Similar idea. Whatever the origin of fuzzing, there were a lot of academic papers produced around the phenomena of using invalid input to trigger unexpected results. A lot of papers before we started to see open source and commercial versions of fuzz testers. So is it fair to say that a lot of security tools were the result of academic research? I'm not sure how, how the first fuzzer was built, but I think in fact it was an academic exercise. So the idea came from the security or reliability research. But obviously these days, many of the fuzzing tools like they come from different backgrounds now. So, well, to the truth, I don't think it has been studied that much. Uh, I think there's a fair amount of tools coming from academic backgrounds, but then also uh, like specialists who have done tools for their own use and then like giving them out for the community to use and, and to improve. And also there are companies which make tools like free, free versions of them for promotion and because they really think that it's, it's good for the world and then have like premium paid versions. So there are all kinds of ways where tools come to life. So let's say I have this great idea for a tool. There's this process. It takes so many minutes to perform and I need to do it every single time. Wouldn't it be great if a tool could do that for me and just give me the results? So I create it. Now what? How does anybody know I have this tool? 
then it's marketing, but obviously very few open source developers have a mar- marketing budget. But I'm certain you have a community that people having the similar problems and, and maybe you created the tool to solve a problem that many other people have. So that community is probably your best friend here. You get early adapters. If it's a good tool, they will start using it and, and they will tell others. And very one good way is that is that get great results, find vulnerabilities or whatever your tool is doing and report them and tell. And people come to ask that, well, how did you find that thing? And then you can tell it's my new tool. I don't think a tool can be great, actually, or, or without the users. So they go hand in hand and you get users to get the community and gives you a chance to improve the tool. So turn that around. Just because I can market my tool, how does somebody know whether or not it's good? How do you know if it even works or works well? My take is that this is a problem. Um, many tools are they are no, not they are not greatly tested. So uh, even if there are updates, they may work differently. The new version there might be regression. And so on. Obviously, there's a huge scale of things. Some open source tools are backed by companies or foundations, and they are rigorously tested. And then some are made by individual at some point, and then the individual has moved on, and the tool is like abandonware. Well, obviously, at some point, those tools, the users abandon them as well. And sometimes they are picked by somebody else who takes the responsibility or makes a new version of it, make a branch of it. And maybe change the name. So there are many different things happening for different tools. So it sounds like there's a need for third-party validation or testing. I got my start writing about malware. This was back even before the term malware existed. There were times when new viruses or later worms would be reported daily, when it seemed like this was getting out of control. Then came the antivirus and anti-malware products. So there was a need to report on which ones were better at solving the problem. For that, I turned to a few third parties, such as AV Comparatives out of the University of Innsbruck in Austria. They provided objective analysis of how well, say, Norton Antivirus worked compared to Trend Micro Antivirus. But malware is a niche category. Who's going to test the network scanners, the port scanners, and the software code itself? Yes, that's that's true. Um... I guess there have been, for example, a, a virus tool comparisons that what they can found and so on. But I'm not aware of any like systematic long running effort of measuring a set of tools and how they perform. It would be interesting. I think it would be great. It's, uh, very hard to see how that could happen, though. Uh, but there are some things that are similar to third-party validation. For example, these days, all these public repositories, they have all these quality check code scanning features that can measure the quality of the software. And also we have, in our, my current academic setting, we have looked for doing some testing of the open source security tools. But the problem is that it's probably the checks are general in nature. We check that they, like, install properly and so on it's it's very hard to see that there would be somebody who looks at the specific feature of the tool the the specific why the tool was built and measures how good that is so there it's a community and the users again they they choose to use the tool maybe you can also trust that it's a good good tool but it would be great if there would be somebody 
really uh, measuring the tools and, and giving, giving them good feedback. So we have a plethora of security tools, some vetted, most not. Back to the earlier question, where do I find these? Certainly, I don't go to the dark web for them, or do I? Yeah, please do not. In the internet, there are great resource sites. Google uh, what you want to do, and you will find a pages with list tools and so on. Um, and then there are, for example, dedicated Linux distribution, which have a, like a collections of tools ready to be used. I think it's a great way to start uh, doing some security analysis. There are also some uh, Windows based uh, virtual machine images uh, to get started. Also, in the, we, I work for this in this KingCam project. We also collected some tools that we think are good and uh, to be used in a you know yeah, re- ready to use way. And we actually use containers to package those tools so they are easy to get started running them. So, what are some of the upcoming trends that we should look for in security? and security tools? Well, my take is that it is as we are more and more networked and like we have this internet of things and bring your own devices and clouds, everything is, everything is IT based. We need, and unfortunately also more and more security. Well, not unfortunately, we need more and more security analysis because there are more incidents and more things to protect. So the demand for security analysis is increasing. And obviously, then the, there are more users for the tools. With more users, there are not everybody can be a super cyber security expert. So we need tools that are easier to use. And some of those are going to be commercial tools. And, and then we probably some are going to be cloud-based solutions because, well, cloud is good. And then also these open source tools are getting more uh, users. So, um, we study now how to make the tools easier to use, install, and run, and how to make it easier to automate tasks with those tools, uh, for, and then support users for sharing, for example, tool configuration, sharing results, sharing information about those, how to use those tools efficiently, and what are the results. And we aim to scale the analysis capability to match the requirement of the like society going forward. It's more people, but also more effective use of the tools. So I think the future is more tools, more, more usage of tools. And for the commercial tools, what about the role of automation? Well, certainly there are a lot of room to automate analysis of, let's say, security incidents, but also like to analyze the, um, proactively what's the security posture of companies or applications and so on. By automating the, let's say, mundane, everyday tasks, we give more time for the people to look, look for the interesting, for the unexpected tasks, and, uh, and so on. I, I think AI has a big role also. So there's a testing analysis, but a lot of results. So there's a lot of data. And when there are a lot of data, then the machine learning and other artificial intelligence um, systems have have what they can use to work on, work on and analyze. So I think it's a natural to move to that direction. I think it's the proactive things that are proceeding because um, we really want to be ahead of the curve and to find the vulnerabilities before somebody gets into the system or before 
zero days are discovered. We want to find stuff already in the R&D uh, and before stuff go into production. So that's at least where we should put the focus on. Um, because just like after we already have an incident, then everything is so much more difficult and much more expensive. And there's already something bad has perhaps happened. So I should also mention that automation helps with remediation. Ideally, you want a test solution that also validates the validity of a vulnerability before you have your developers go wasting time on something that really isn't something. So would an automated tool have been able to find something like Heartbleed? Mm, interesting question. Um, I think, well, I don't expect automation to find a new kinds of vulnerabilities. Like Heartbleed, it was really a new kind of vulnerability. Obviously, now that we know that those things exist, um, we probably have the, can train the eye to find them. But I would imagine that the new categories of vulnerabilities are in the future also found by clever individuals. Is that to say humans are somehow superior to automated tools? Obviously, the capability of a human is very limited on, on the amount of data he or she can process so it's it's always so that the human looks only a limited amount of data and we need automation or artificial intelligence to pick up select the data for us it's simply too much to digest otherwise so raleigh was part of codenomicon which helped find heartbleed does he have any advice for someone with great tools who might want to go into business for themselves or maybe just want to find the next heartbleed how do you start a startup company and I would always say that the most important thing is the idea that what is the problem that you solve for the customer. And if you have a great like solution for a big problem, then you are like you are a long way <laughs> towards the success. And and a part of the having a great idea is also timing. So uh, if you are too early, well, then you don't find customers, you run out of money. If you are too late, there's a fierce competition. And then it's no longer made question of who has the greatest technology, but it's the who has the greatest marketing, which is a very important function, not to say. But as an engineer, I, I I think I was so privileged to work start a company which just happened to be right on the right time, so that we could uh, we could evangelize our technology and teach our customers that you know this is something you can do, and they were happy and they bought from us it was so much and this was so um good a couple of footnotes to heartbleed the amount of coordination between google and codenomicon cannot be understated they reached out to their respective computer emergency response teams or certs in the united states and finland and were able to work with the open source ssl folks immediately this while contacting major players such as yahoo and facebook two days ahead of the public announcement which may have mitigated the risk for data breaches. It also established a great precedent for future vulnerability disclosures. And I've written about this elsewhere. Despite what you may think about naming vulnerabilities, it is so much easier to remember Heartbleed than CVE 2014-0160. At least I think so. And finally, although the patch has been available since 2014, if you fire up Shodan, the IoT device search engine, 
you'll find over 250,000 devices still using the vulnerable versions of OpenSSL. That's an alarming number. Until you start to drill down, these devices are sensors and monitors, and they're often left out in the field for years on end with no extra resources or capabilities for updates. In theory, you could still overtake them, but the data leaked would not be all that interesting, I would guess. Perhaps the temperature, maybe the soil acidity. These devices will remain vulnerable, and eventually, as they start to fail, they will be replaced with non-vulnerable versions. And then we will start to see the large number attributed to Heartbleed on Shodan and other resources go down. At least I hope so. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. For The Hacker Mind, I remain, hello, bird, four characters, Robert from Mosing.